Hello, and thank you for listening to the Avid Reader Events Podcast. For more information about this event or any of our other events, please visit our website. A former theologian, Sarah Santiles completed her undergraduate degree at Yale and both a master's and a doctorate at Harvard. She was a college professor for over a decade before becoming a full-time writer and is now a passionate advocate for life lived by peace and principle. Her previous books are Taught by America, a, struggle, a Story of Struggle and Hope in Compton, A Church of Her Own, What Happens When a Woman Takes the Pulpit, and Breaking Up with God, A Love Story. She lives in Idaho and is on tour around Australia now for Draw Your Weapons, thanks to Adelaide Writers Week. Can you please put your hands together? To Yeah, you were on conversations with Sarah Konoski this morning, I so I feel like I have like a really intense competition. <laughs> um, so for those of you, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the cover of the book, um, but in case we have um, people in the audience who haven't read it, I am going to um, just read out a bit of a sort of blurb slash explainer, because it, um, the book touches on so many different things, so many different um, types of writing in there and so many different concepts. And so I am just going to read a bit of an introduction for everyone. Draw Your Weapons is a reading experience like no other. Through a dazzling combination of memoir, history, reporting, visual culture, literature, and theology, Sarah offers an impassioned defense of life lived by peace and principle. It is a literary collage with an urgent hope at its core that art might offer tools for remaking the world. In this book, Sarah tells the true stories of Howard, a conscientious objector from World War II, and Miles, a former prison guard at Abu Ghraib, and in the process, she challenges conventional thinking about how war is waged, witnessed, and resisted. The pacifist and the soldier both create art in response to war. Howard builds a violin, Miles paints portraits of detainees. With echoes of Susan Sontag and Maggie Nelson, she investigates images of violence from slavery to the drone age. In doing so, she wrestles with some of our most profound questions. What does it take to inspire compassion? What impact can one person have? How should we respond to violence when it feels like it can't be stopped? So my first question uh, for you is something um, sort of quite broad and introductory, but for those of you who haven't looked inside the book, it is set out not like a typical book. Um, It's comprised of hundreds of small sections. What is... That is it. (laughs) (laughs) And what is a literary collage? Is it that? And why did you write the book like this? Well, um, first of all, thank you so much for talking with me. And thank you, everybody, for being here. This is like the closest I've ever been. (laughs) It's wonderful. And you'll be able to express your opinions. Or (laughs) And thank you to the readers who read. That was fantastic. Thank you. Um, so I wrote this first as a novel. I'd written three um, nonfiction books, and I decided I wanted to write a novel. And so I wrote it as a novel for about three years. And then I shared it with a friend who told me it was terrible. <laughs> and after I finished crying, <laughs> and we're not friends anymore, <laughs> I, I called her back. And she said, look, write it as nonfiction. These are real stories. They're true stories. Why don't you tell it true? And so I thought, okay. And I basically shattered the book into pieces to try to figure out what I had there. Um, And then once I did that, I just started writing fresh to see if I could write it true. And I I realized she was right. It was much better that way. But then I had all of these pieces, and I had to figure out how to put them together. And 
I um, took a writing workshop with a writer named Nick Flynn, um, who is an American writer, and he had us actually cut up our writing and tape it back together. We did a generative writing workshop, which I highly recommend doing, and then cut into pieces all this stuff that we had created, and I thought, oh, this is what I want to do. And I wanted the book to work. First, I wanted there to be lots of white space so that the reader could animate the book and figure out why I'd put things together so that when you read it, it was a different experience than when somebody else would read it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I also had in mind this artist named Fred Wilson, um, who's an African-American artist in the United States, and he did an exhibit in the Baltimore Historical Society where they gave him access to the entire collection, and he put things together to make an argument in juxtaposition. And the image that stayed with me was it was this cabinet and it was filled with silver this elaborate beautiful vases and cups and it also had slave manacles there and he titled that piece metalwork 1865 and by putting together that these like beautiful art objects with this um, instrument of torture and violence he was making this argument about the relationship between wealth and slavery that wouldn't have happened otherwise and that's what I wanted the book to do so I wanted it to put things together in pieces um, I also think that's how we hear, listen to information. Like you might hear a snippet on the radio until I scream so loudly about Trump, I have to turn it off. And I'll hear a song and then read a poem, right? So that um, I wanted it to work, kind of like how we absorb information mm. in the world. I read somewhere that the book took you ten years. It did. So it was three as something else. Yes. And then seven, the rest. Yes. <laughs> uh, my yes. question is um, what's wrong with me no <laughs> no um, it's incredible um, it's an incredible work and when I read that that it had taken a decade I was like well that's how it's that good <laughs> but my question is did you go through phases of abandoning it or giving up or was it constant perpetual toil uh, it was constant perpetual toil <laughs> and abandoning and yeah. giving up both I, I wrote um, my dissertation during that time also and then I also wrote breaking up with God but I first saw I first saw the photograph of Howard in the newspaper um, who's the conscientious objector who made a violin when he was imprisoned um, in 2006 and so I've been like kind of wrestling with that material for the next decade well that's uh, thank you for creating a perfect segue into my next oh, question great. which is can you tell everyone about when you saw the two photos that really sure. kicked this off and did you see them at, at the same two time two years apart right um, so I saw in 2004 the torture photographs taken at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq were published in um, the newspaper and I saw that iconic photograph of the man standing on the box Um, with the hood over his head and I was writing my dissertation at the time I was a doctoral student in the study of religion and I was writing on imagination about how we need imagination um, so that we can imagine the world we want to bring into being like you have to be able to picture what you want to bring into being before you can do that Um, and I saw this that photograph and people were calling those images crucifixion images and I had been preparing to be ordained as a priest before I realized I didn't believe in God, which is kind of a problem for that job. (laughs) So I was like, well, what is this Christian narrative about salvific violence? What happens when it's imposed on the bodies of tortured Muslim men? Does that make people resist torture, or does that suggest that maybe torture is divinely ordained? If, you know, Jesus was tortured to save us, what does it do to call these images crucifixion? So I stopped writing about imagination and wrote on those photographs. 
um, and my advisor quit. It was very dramatic. Um, and then uh, two years later, I was back. I, I left um, graduate school and moved elsewhere. And I came back to take my exams, I think. I don't know what I was doing. And I saw on the front page of a Boston newspaper this photograph of a man um, who was just glowing, completely luminous. And he was being handed a violin by his grandson. And I read briefly the story. He, he had been a conscientious objector during World War II. And his roommate was Japanese-American, and his family was interned in the internment camps in the U.S. And to protest the internment of Japanese-Americans, he walked out of the work camp and was put in prison. And in prison, he decided he would build a violin, but he never finished it. And his grandson was a furniture maker, and he and a friend of his finished the violin and were gifting it to this man on his 82nd birthday. And everything in my body was like, you have to write about this man, you have to know him. So I, I just called him up. And... Um, got to know him and his family and ended up writing this book about him. And I can understand and hear why both of these images separately moved you so much, but why did they both speak to you and why did they speak to you in some way that came together in one book? Oh. When you've written, written, you've written so many books now that, mm -hmm. are, that seem to me to be about more specific issues and yet you saw these two separate images two years apart but knew that they had to be explored together. I didn't know they had to right. be explored together. It took me several years to work that out. Apparently my brain is kind of slow <laughs> in making connections. But um, for me, the, I, I became really fascinated with photographs. Like how do, how do they work? Um, what are our ethical requirements when we see images of suffering? Should I look at people in pain or should I maybe look away? Does my looking violate them further or would it be an ethical violation to close my eyes and pretend they don't exist? So I was interested in the fact that these two images had changed my life. You know, one, a tor the torture photographs made me switch my dissertation topic and kind of dedicate myself to trying to stop torture in whatever small way I could do that. And the Howard photograph brought me to this beautiful man who had um, dedicated his life to trying to stop war. Um, so I was interested in how images activate us to do something versus just having an emotional response. Um, and then I became interested in, in Miles, my student who was stationed at Abu Ghraib prison, because he was an artist, and Howard as an artist who had protested war. I wanted to put these two men together um, because I felt like they approached uh, violence very differently, but they were both um, trying to make lives that mattered. Mm. I feel like now would be a really great time for that reading about Howard. Sure. Um, I've chosen two small sections of the book that I've asked Sarah to read. Um, I've picked them because they are... As I mentioned, um, the different segments of the book, um, some are quotes, some are about history, some are memoir from Sarah's own life, some are sort of reportage from when she went and met and got to know Howard. Um, and so I picked two small sections that are very different. Thank you. I broke the law because I had to, Howard said. In the middle of the trial, when the prosecutor was going after Howard, calling him a criminal and a traitor, the judge interrupted him. This is a man of conscience, the judge said, beating on his fist, on his desk with his fist. This is not a criminal. You will not speak to him that way again. And then he sentenced Howard to prison in Tucson. That's what civil disobedience is. You break the law to make a point, and you accept the consequences. While Howard was in prison, his wife, Ruane, knit him a blue cardigan from the wool she'd bought outside the jail. Howard was released four and a half months later, and he and Ruane moved to a farm near Newburgh, Oregon, that belonged to Paul and Margaret Mishner. 
Paul had been a conscientious objector during World War I. Howard worked in the dairy. A few months after he was released from prison in November 1943, Howard was drafted a second time. He wrote a letter to the draft board reminding its members he was a conscientious objector, that he would not fight, reminding them he would not report to the CPS camp either in protest of both internment and conscription. If the people were convinced of the rightness of militarism in this war, then there would be no need for conscription, he wrote. The people would volunteer. I believe in the supreme worth and divinity of human personality. I believe, too, that war and its methods are no solution to the conflict situations which confront us. In the end, we shall find that love and kindness is the only creative way to solve our problems. It seems to me, then, that I can best serve my country and my people through disobedience to something so counter to our way of life. Ruane was pregnant with their first child when Howard was sentenced to prison again. They asked for his prison term to be delayed until their child was born. Howard was granted a few months with his daughter before he was sent to McNeil Island Penitentiary in Washington. He was there for almost two years. Thank you. So that's Howard. By contrast, can you tell us a bit about Miles? Sure. So I was teaching in California um, at a university there, a state school, and um, I was teaching a class on critical media studies and how we look at images and think about images. And this was in my period of teaching where I just showed violent image after violent image after violent image to my poor traumatized students um, because I thought it was important for them to look. And one day I showed up to class and two students were there early, Miles and this woman. And the woman told me that Miles had been stationed at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq and he had been a prison guard. And I've been writing my dissertation on that prison. Um, he was actually not the, not the soldiers in the pictures. He replaced those soldiers who replaced, he was like the third replacement. Um, and he says that I forced him to talk to me about his experience, but I, what I remember was I said, if you ever want to talk about your experience, I'd be, I'd be happy to listen. And he came up to me right after class and said, I'm ready now. And he came into my office and just told me story after story after story of horrible violence. And he told me in a tone of just like he was describing, you know, vacuuming or, you know, I can't think of another task, washing the dishes, totally affectless. Um, and he, work, uh, listening to him and becoming his friend, and he was also an artist, and he painted these paintings of detainees he had once guarded made me think about my own pacifism differently because I've always been a pacifist and I think there's a way that I thought it let me off the hook in some way that I wasn't responsible for the United States' wars because I disagreed with them philosophically. Mm -hmm. um, but having this student who had gone to war so that he could get money for school to come sit in my classroom challenged me to think about my own complicity in a different way. Um, we don't have a draft in the States anymore, but we do have an economic draft. It's pretty much the only way people can get money for school. Mm. There's a line in there that Howard says actually about um, feeling like pacifism wasn't enough and that, it, that he needed to run toward the problem and mm. at least art. Was, is that how it was? That I can't remember that. <laughs> yeah, there's like this sensation that it wasn't enough to just do nothing. Mm -hmm. You had to do something and yet you were trying to be a pacifist mm -hmm. and so art. Yeah, and yeah, that just really struck me, yeah. and that it was, it was interesting to me that you picked two subjects, sort of protagonists in a way, I suppose, and that one made art instead of war, but mm -hmm. one made art as well as yes. war. Yes, yes. 
how do you deal with them at the same time without demonizing the one that does the war as well uh, as the art? Well, my, I, I love Miles so much. Um, I just, I think he's such a complicated person and um, such a good person. And so that also complicated my feelings about what it means to be a soldier, what it means to go to war and to witness these terrible things. He'd been trained as a cook. And this is when Abu Ghraib had gotten better organized. Um, they had actually outsourced all of that cooking work to private military firms. So they made him a guard instead. And he described, which I read about, these moments of fingerprinting the detainees where he would have to like lay their fingers down on um, a scanning machine um, and how intimate that was. It was like holding hands. And that's one of the first things he said, that he was surprised how intimate war was, how much touch there was. Um, between him and the people he was supposed to be afraid of. He has this line about, um, he has some sort of confessions, things that he says to you that he's like sort of not proud of the way they behaved mm -hmm. there. But there's, I remember it really struck me, he was talking about jokes that the, the guards would have and jokes that they would play on the detainees. Mm -hmm. And he says, he has this line that he's been telling you this particular anecdote, which paints him in a bad light to the reader, you know, mm -hmm. sitting all these years later in your office reading it, um, but he says, he sort of brings himself up and he says, oh, it's like what seemed funny there, it's not funny now anymore, but yeah. I, I don't understand why. It's yeah. like, it struck me that that was this theme that comes through all of your book, is like the degrees of separation. Mm -hmm. But then I wanted to ask you, you're writing about wars and about issues that are often physically distant and certainly distant in time. Mm -hmm. How much it's it's so easy for us to sit here and think about it and write about it, but mm -hmm. where how do you do so in a way that acknowledges the context that you're missing and how? Yeah, it's a challenge. Um, I I became obsessed with this group in the United States called War Tours, uh, War Tourism, and I can't remember. I think it's. I can't remember the exact name of the company, but I was driving, listening to the radio, and I heard, I heard the founder of the company come on and talk about what he does. And they basically take people to war zones so that they can watch um, the war down below, and they can you can go get like artisanal cherries and wine, and then go watch people shoot each other from a hilltop. And I had to pull the car over because I was like, what is wrong with our world? I I couldn't believe it. You can go to his website, and it has. Um, all this racist stuff and like sound effects and it's it's just incredible and I was telling a friend about it she goes but Sarah what's what's different between that and, and watching television like watching the news mm -hmm. or, or writing your book and I was like oh what is different about that you know what does it mean to witness violence from afar mm -hmm. um, is it just a question of intent that makes something different um, like I and so I tried to wrestle with that ethically mm -hmm. like all of these things are removed from me, but I'm also accountable for some of it. And what does it mean to be an informed citizen who wants to pay attention in a way that matters? Mm. I haven't answered it. Yeah. Just, it just occurred to me to touch back on something you mentioned about there not being technically a draft in the States at the moment, but there's basically a, a financial draft. Mm -hmm. That was something I didn't know until I read this book, was just how... Feel like a conspiracy theorist but like it's true like how financially driven so much of the policy around the draft was mm -hmm. at so many different points in time mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about that like there would be different times when some people it would be just a matter that you could 
swap your name being called out if you had enough money to do so. Yeah. And then, so in doing so, they would just be the government would be making a lot of money and sending poor people to war instead of rich people. Yeah, it was crazy. That I started researching conscientious objection because mm. it's not something I was taught. That there's been this long history mm. of people resisting war ever since there have been wars from things like people cutting off their trigger fingers so that they wouldn't yeah. they would say they couldn't go or like blinding them blinding themselves yeah. yeah doing all kinds of things but one of the things that happened you would get drafted and all you would have to do is pay um, you could pay $500 or whatever and not have to go or you could pay another person to go in your place yeah so it, it just meant that people with money didn't have to serve and people without money did have to serve which is pretty much how it is now mm. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah incredibly shocking. Um, uh, just before we move on, I want to talk back, um, go back to the sort of format and the process of writing this book. But before I do, while we're still on this idea of like the power of art or the place of art in considering war, can you talk a little bit about Guernica? Oh, sure. Um, because that was when I read that. I, that really struck me that moment. So can you please... Um, You're talking about the Colin Powell moment? Yeah, yeah. So Colin Powell, who now seems like a good guy with our um, current administration mm. in the States. I'm like, remember the good old days when I was mad at Colin Powell? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, he, when he went to the UN to make the case for going to war against Iraq, he, um, at the UN, there's um, a tapestry reproduction of Guernica. And most people would stand in front of that to make their announcements to the press. And he actually asked for a blue curtain to be put in front of that tapestry. Um, so he basically redacted this anti-war painting so that he could make an argument for war. And, and when people raised this, he, they said, oh, no, it's better TV. Like, Guernica's too busy <laughs> for TV cameras. But clearly he knows the power of images. Um, I'm also interested in him because he started, he, he basically made the argument for war using a photograph. Um, he used an aerial photograph. You have a great exhibit on aerial images at your modern museum. If you haven't seen it, you should go. It's fantastic. But he used an aerial photograph that he labeled with these yellow arrows saying, here's proof of weapons of mass destruction. Um, and it, uh, he said that they were, you know, I, I don't remember exactly what he said. Well, wasn't it like, they were, like these trucks can only be used to yes. transport this type of thing? Yeah. And so the fact that these two trucks are parked beside this type of building means this. Means they have weapons yeah. of mass destruction. It turned out that it was just a fire department yeah. and it was fire trucks. But I thought that somebody who hid an anti-war image and then used an image to start the war in the same conversation, um, he, he's a person who knows the power of images. Yeah. The question I wanted to ask you as soon as I read that passage was, don't you feel like that's a really crappy like, example of how art is powerless mm. against people who want to wage war? Like, literally, he just covered it up oh. and said a speech right in front of it. But because he knows how powerful it could be. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, all you have to do is turn it, turn it yeah. to the wall and then it doesn't have any power. Yeah. There's a strange essay by um, W.J.T. Mitchell, an art theorist, called What Do Images Want? And he says that um, it's a very sexist article, actually. It'll probably infuriate you. Um, but one of the things he says they want is they want your power. They need you to be animate. Um, they can't do anything on their own, even as he's treating them as alive. It's kind of interesting, but... Yeah, they don't have that much power if we don't look at them mm. or if we don't care about what we look at. Mm. Um, back to the format a little bit. How did you decide how smart your reader was? 
<laughs> because I found myself um, in parts when you know I'm reading a section that's a bit of your memoir and then some history and then a quote or a bit of etymology and I'm putting these things together and I'm like feeling really smart because I'm <laughs> these like connections between all the parts and then it's like next chapter and I'm like I don't understand why these things are next to each other uh, what am I missing when you have a format that's sort of non-traditional who are you who are you writing for everybody I mean I I I I think everyone has the capacity to make connections, and I don't think that there's a right connection. If you felt lost, that's you know not my that's my problem, not your problem. <laughs> um, that means I didn't make the connections well. But um, I I kind of I it's a heavy lift for a reader, and I want I think that um, you know exercising the power of our minds to make meaning is a skill that we need to practice. I need to practice. So I had. I had. I believe that everyone can read it, and I never wanted anyone to feel dumb or alienated. <laughs> that was not my not my goal, and I tried to make it in accessible language, mm-hmm. even though it asks the reader to hold a lot of things in their mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now would be a good time for the second um, reading. I picked this out because uh, when I read this, I'll let you read it first, and then I'll okay. ask you about it. Okay. <clears throat> Many of the symptoms observed in shell-shocked soldiers are identical to those of hysterical women. Hystera, Greek for womb. Hippocrates believed the womb could wander, an independent creature inside the female body, a body that craves moisture and warmth that needs sex. Any unnatural behavior, celibacy, for example, or living alone, makes the uterus too light, too dry, so it wanders. When it presses against the intestines, the woman chokes. When it sits against the diaphragm, the woman is unable to speak or breathe. When it, when it compresses the arteries, the woman sleeps, her head heavy. When it lands next to the brain, hysteria. Thank you. When I read that, um, of course, what I thought is, well, that's a big lie. Like, yeah. that's not true, and I feel cranky about that. <laughs> and then I realized that, well, if that's not true, what else is not true? And then I thought, <clears throat> who is telling me these things? Hmm. How, when you are taking from so many different sort of genres and, and so many different types of writing, how do you create a, a narrative, a narrator's voice? Hmm. I've never been asked that question, which is interesting, and you asked me it before. One up on Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, well, I guess a couple things. I wanted, I wanted to write this book without any judgment. I wanted to make an argument by invitation instead of a polemic. So that was one of the things I spent several years editing out, <laughs> you know, trying to get rid of any words that I thought were unnecessary, and trying to get rid of any kind of judgment about something. So I, for example, in that passage, if you just read it straight, it could be like, I really think there's hysteria in the womb, wanders. Um, But right after that, I put um, this crazy section about Charcot, who was Freud's mentor, who um, thought that he would help hysterical women who'd been locked in prisons in Paris Mm. by locking them in small dark rooms and taking photographs of them with the flash that would surprise them. And then that would be their hysterical symptom. And so he could label it, you know, scientifically and then justify keeping them locked away. Um, but for the voice, I think I just, 
um, it's like being inside my head. <laughs> I mean, it's like the, the curation itself becomes the voice. Mm. I, I, one of my other questions was, did you ever watch those game shows where they lock somebody in a, like a telephone box and there's money flying around and they have to like try and grab the money? That's how I imagined you after 10 years of gathering material for this book. It's kind and of accurate. Like, how, do you, how, do you, how do you pick what's in there? Well, I did, I actually um, cut up and taped the book back together about 75 times. Um, so I would take a couple chapters that weren't working and I knew there was excess material and I'd literally cut it into pieces. Then I'd lay blank pages all over a room and I'd pile them back up and then tape them back down to see what worked. And that's, I highly recommend that as a method because you can see right away what you're kind of romancing and trying to like, I really want this elephant passage to be in here, but it doesn't go. But how do you know it doesn't go? Um, you just know. There's something physical <laughs> about it that you know. And then I would make myself retype it fresh. I didn't let myself cut and paste. Mm -hmm. I just retyped it every time I taped it. Um, and that makes you commit to every single word again. So mm -hmm. that's how I did it. But if someone, I was like a mad scientist. If someone talked to me while I was doing it, I would lose all the connections that I had made. So I had to be alone. <laughs> I would be like sweating. And it, there's something really powerful about the physical process as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I have about two or three more questions for you, and then I'm going to open it up to audience questions for ten minutes. So if you've had anything bubbling away, um, please keep it in mind. Um, I want to ask you about photography a little bit more, because um, I really like some of the work that you write for the New York Times about photography specifically. Um, and I know you mentioned that you moved away from that original sort of religious thesis idea and then started an academic work about photography. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about, can you clarify that for me? Were you, was it, you mentioned that when you like saw the two photos then you started thinking more about photography, mm -hmm. but you have studied it or, and you teach it. Can you talk a bit about? Sure. Um, when I decided to write about the torture photographs, I basically, you know, I'd been studying imagination and philosophy and theology, so I had to train myself in visual culture. Mm -hmm. So I just started reading photography theory on my own because, my, like I said, my advisor had quit, so I had to teach it to myself. Um, and I started realizing that people uh, like Sontag and Roland Barthes and um, John Berger use religious language to talk about photographs and what they do. They talk about them as transcendent, as... Um, kind of these holy objects that Susan Sontag said, would you rather have a nail from the true cross or a mm -hmm. photograph? And of Jesus? Of Jesus, yeah, yeah. And people would choose photograph. Mm -hmm. um, so I was just interested in that. So that's when I started paying attention to visual culture. Then when I was teaching critical theory, I would use photographs um, as a way to unlock the concepts that we were wrestling with in the classroom. Um, and then I started teaching at an art school. I taught at an art school for five years mm -hmm. um, and taught a lot of classes about um, ethics and aesthetics and used photographs to do that work. But I became obsessed with thinking about violent images and whether we should look at them, whether we have a moral obligation to look or whether we should protect the subjects from our gaze. Mm. What was the feeling, because obviously we're all Australians, what was the feeling when those photos of Abu Ghraib came out in America? There was a, such a huge range. I mean, there were people like me who were outraged, and um, there were people who were like, this isn't, of course, this is what we're doing. We've always been doing who's, this. We who's just actually seen, shocked. Yeah, nobody yeah. should be, if you're outraged that or shocked, that's your problem, your, yeah. that's your own ignorance. And then there were people who thought they were funny and evidence of this is what we do to terrorists. Mm. Like, they used them as... Um, they thought they were 
not good pictures, but they thought they were funny. Mm. There's a line in the book about um, you noticing that um, in some of the reproductions, the like genitals would be pixelated, mm-hmm. and there's this line you have about the absurdity, as if the only troubling thing about the photos was the nakedness. <laughs> yeah, I remember first seeing in that first week there would be slideshows on the on the newspapers online, and it would say. Um, warning, um, viewer discretion advice, like sexual content viewer discretion advice. I was like, that is not the problem with these images, you yeah. know. I mean, of course, some of it is sexual violence, but it's torture is the problem. Yeah. Um, and I think that's such a strange frame to put on top of those images. So then if, if they are in some way pornographic, then you've done your part by not looking at them or not getting, not seeing them as sexualized. Uh, so that suggests, I think, the wrong task for an ethical viewer. Mm. And so how does that relate to your your caring so much in your investigations into aerial photographs? Oh, I became obsessed with drones. I said, Dr- and drones, <laughs> I yeah. sound like I'm not fun, but I am kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, because I became so interested, I, I became interested in how photographs construct a view of the other so that we can justify how we treat them. So I've, I've been looking at historical photographs that were basically fabricated in order to commit violence against people. So, for example, there are these daguerreotypes of um, enslaved people that this man named Agazi wanted to use to prove the subhumanity of African Americans. So if they were subhuman, then you could enslave them. And he used pho- photography to do that work. Um, so I thought there was there's this link between photography and violence. And in drones, it's literal the camera of the drone and the gun are the same you know you you kill people or send missiles based on what you see mm-hmm. um, so I started thinking about um, drones in that way and and how you could disrupt the kind of certain vision that drones seem to promise when in fact aerial photography is very difficult to decipher mm-hmm. but we pretend that they are these kind of transcendent uber vision things and th- then I've also made an argument that drones are like gods you know, they're omniscient, omnipotent, and they deal out death to those deemed sinners. Um, so I've been trying to work that argument out. It's and very popular in the Christian fundamentalism. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it punctuated throughout the book when you get the notifications about the drone strikes. Mm-hmm. Can you, like, in case anyone hasn't heard about that project? That I have an app on my phone that has been kicked off of Apple, actually. That wow, really? It because it has... Um, what did they call it? Disturbing content or inappropriate content. But anytime there is a uh, covert drone strike by the United States, I would get an alert on my phone. And this artist named Josh Bagley had, had made this app, and he would pick out um, little, almost poetic lines from the alerts. And so you'd get the date, the time, and how many people were killed, um, and where. And then this little line of text. And it would be like um, two men were walking to the uh, shops to buy milk on the way back, like dead before they got home. Yeah. Just these, like, yeah. Very poetic and strange. Yeah. 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 Um, And they punctuate the book, and so it just, yeah, again, for me, the overwhelming theme in this book is distance between issues, Mm -hmm. between people, and how we can try and minimize that distance. Mm -hmm. And so having the book punctuated with you getting direct notifications to your phone was just another way to tie it to the immediate and to you and therefore the reader. It was really powerful. Um, So, does anybody have any questions for Sarah? You can put your hand up. I have a million more, so... (laughs) Yes? 
No, I have it. I have it. Yeah, I have it, and I um, I really tried my best to jam it into every single chapter, and I, I realized it didn't. It was about the first elephant that was brought to the United States. I'll just tell it here. See, yeah. I want to jam it. In there. So there was um, the first elephant brought to the United States was um, they put her in the hold of a ship that was usually used to carry spices, and she was alone, and they brought her here, and they called her Old Bet. And um, she was bought by this man who thought that she, he would, she would be better at tilling his fields. But then people kept trying to come get a look at her, so he started charging them. And this is like the beginning of the circus. And um, he said that her, he told everybody that her hide could stop bullets. Um, so she was eventually shot and killed at a really young age. And I read that elephants, first of all, they remember for 20 years if they haven't seen some you know, one of their other elephants I remember, and they communicate by vibrations in the earth. So he would put her in the center of the city and make her dance, basically. And I thought about those vibrations trying to reach out to other elephants that had been left behind. It just, I couldn't, it broke my heart. So I just kept thinking, this is totally what I'm writing about in this book, but I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So now I'm working on a book about adoption and kinship. And I jammed the elevator. <laughs> I know it's not going to last or something. Until you cut up the book about yeah, it. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, I yeah. want to put the elephant in. Yeah. yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Were you in Australia at that time when the parkland shooting happened? Oh, I was home. Yeah. Yeah. So and there's a lot of opinions about that here. Probably different from many opinions about that. What are your opinions about yeah, it here? Gun control in oh. Australia and your leader. Do you have good gun control here? Yes. The best. Um, <laughs> we had one particular, it was Port Arthur, yeah. um, and then we reformed the law, and now we don't have That's crazy it anymore. Talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Literally, yeah. it was like, it was that simple. Um, so, yeah, Australia sort of, I think, on a national scale, feels like it. It is able to pass judgment on America you should. unless we like figured out how to do it right. You should pass judgment on us. Yeah. I mean, it's just we've had school shooting after school shooting after school shooting after school shooting, and now it feels because those students have been so activated, it feels like something could maybe. And I think Trump said something today about. He did. I got a push notification from the New York Times, yeah. and I was like, "What is this crazy business?" Yeah. Who knows? He says all kinds of things, yeah. but. Um, and there's also now been backlash because there's been so many um, black activists who have been organizing around this, and now all of a sudden people are paying attention. So it remains still complicated, but it's devastating. And and the use of images also, there were with the fact that students were um, recording with their cell phones what was happening, I think that I, w I, I pitched an essay actually to the New Yorker, and I, I was zero for eight in the last four or four weeks, so they said no, but I thought that was interesting. Like, how would these images... Would they change it? Or we've seen photographs of um, African Americans being killed by the police and videos, and that didn't do anything to stop or change policy. So I don't know if the photographs will make a difference. Mm -hmm. One or two more? I'm trying to word this as a question. Um, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about so a lot of the images of American violence that we're discussing came through in Australia really clearly as well in our networks and our media. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you think there are different sort of ethical questions or considerations about viewing those images outside of being an American citizen? Hmm. Is that a question? 
Yes, yeah, it's a question. I mean, it was. It's kind of similar to the question about this context. Um, I think probably you can see them better than we can see them. Um, I would think you know that there's sometimes you need some distance to be able to see properly what's in an image. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that would be. Yeah. It struck me a little bit with Miles that um, perhaps I found it easier to judge him because I wasn't um, sort of in any way involved in this idea of like nationalism mm-hmm. like he was in the middle of, of America and being mm-hmm. a troop and it was because there's a, um, a small part about how there's a man on an aeroplane who was a soldier mm-hmm. and every, it was like announced on the aeroplane like ladies and gentlemen we've got a troop on board like isn't that amazing and then people are buying him drinks and it's mm-hmm. just like this idea of being a soldier is really connected to American identity mm-hmm. And so it's, like, easier to pass judgment or to see things clearly when you're over here and not whipped up in that. But there's a way in the United States where we do not... We we say thank you for your service and, like, support our troops. These are bumper stickers or whatever. But we don't do either. Um, And I think there's a way that saying these pat things, like, thank you for your service or can I buy you a drink, or we had to to clap, we had to let him off the plane first, Mm. is this false kind of support. And really, uh, we don't want to look at what we've sent people to do in our name, and we don't want to look at the moral injury that happens, and we don't want to support them when they come home to try to rebuild a self that... And Miles said this thing to me. Um, he says he didn't say it, but he, he did say it. I, I, had a, <laughs> I had a panel on the like fifth anniversary of the Abu Ghraib pictures, and I invited Miles to be part of the panel. It was like a bunch of academics, and he came late, and... He, I had to like make him come sit up, and a woman in the audience st- started going off about um, torturers are coming home. You know, we need to be prepared for the fact that these people have tortured, and now they're going to live among us. And Miles said to her, "Murderers are coming home. You send us to kill." And I think that that showed this gap between how we imagine war and how we welcome people home. And mm. I was the first person who asked Miles about his experience, and he'd been home for two years. Mm. So we don't want to know about it. We don't want to talk about it. We want to look like we support people. We and don't want to give them the mental health they need. Roll yeah. coke on the yeah. plane and say thank you. And let and them then, off first yeah. and cry at a beer commercial when they show. So we have, like, beer commercials that show soldiers. And I think it's a real false... Um, kind of support that demands nothing from us as citizens. Mm. One more. Yes. Uh, how do you see the future of um, warfare, like American and um, on a global scale? Um, like, what do you think is most likely to happen, and what would you hope would happen? That's a really easy question <laughs> to answer. Um, no, I think the future is this, aut- aut- I think drones and automated kind of... Um, the less skin you can put in the game, the better. And I'm, I'm kind of like, haven't you seen Battlestar Galactica? This is not going to go well for humans. Um, I, I think that uh, we're already in this strange future where we're, at least um, the United States is at war with so many countries in so many places that we haven't declared war because we can send these machines or private militaries to fight and not have to even talk to the countries that we're um, showing up. So I think that's going to be... Uh, part of it um, and there's this myth about drone warfare that it's somehow more surgical and more precise and that it risks fewer lives but it actually does tremendous damage on the ground and, and soldiers who are drone 
pilots have a higher incidence of PTSD than soldiers on the ground because they watch their targets for so long. There's a, so it's this huge distance, mm-hmm. but real intimacy. Mm-hmm. You watch someone for a long time before you kill them. There's um, a passage in there um, about a man who's had to watch his target for multiple days, and he saw him like get his kids from school and make mm-hmm. them dinner, and then like the next day he wakes up and makes love to his wife, and then like reads the paper, and just like in the building, and it's just this incredible sense of intimacy where you just see someone's wonderful everyday life and mm-hmm. then that's knowing the whole time, let alone then actually having to pull the trigger. It's mm-hmm. really shocking. It is. Yeah. yeah, so I mean that's as far as I can tell. I think it, we're headed for automation in a really mm-hmm. dangerous way. Mm-hmm. Well, on that <laughs> great. <laughs> <laughs> um, can everyone please give Sarah a big round?